sky when we started the drive back. In the back seat of the station wagon, Emma had fallen asleep with her thumb in her mouth, and Josh was staring out the window, humming. Heading south on Route 7, we crossed the state line into Canaan, bumped over the train tracks that ran there, passed the Connecticut State Police barracks on our right, and then on our left, my dentist, Dr. Zinzer, and Tommy's diner. A quarter of a mile further on, I turned east onto Reservation Road which was the local shortcut between Route 7 and our town of Wyndham Falls. We were twenty minutes from home. It was dark now. Reservation Road was narrow and unlit and flanked throughout by woods on both sides. We were rounding a turn when suddenly I saw a stirring in the air at the outer edge of the headlight beams, like a cloud of upward-falling rain. The car punched into it, and instantly the windshield was splattered with dead insects. I braked hard but kept rolling. "'What was that?' said Grace." Bugs, Josh said excitedly, a swarm. I corrected him, mayflies. It's not may anymore, he said. I switched on the wipers, but they succeeded only in streaking the glass with dead insects. When I tried for wiper fluid, I found there wasn't any. The wipers were squeaking against the glass, and I turned them off. I was irritable. The concert seemed long ago. God damn it. In a sweet, just-awake voice, Emma said, Don't curse, Dad. I could have sworn you were asleep, I said. I have to go to the bathroom, she said. Grace turned and looked at her. We're almost home. How long? Twenty minutes tops, I said. I can't hold it. Grace sighed. Yes, you can. I can't. She's being a baby, said Josh. I am not. Josh, Grace said, that's enough. Then to me, Ethan, let's just stop. Absolutely not, I said. Anyway, stop where? There's that little gas station just up ahead, isn't there? Yes, there was, just ahead. And, I thought, the windshield was dirty with mayflies and we were out of wiper fluid. Perhaps we could buy some there. Todd's gas and auto body sat on the far side of a deep curve in the road, a break in the trees that might have felt like an oasis if it hadn't felt like a junkyard. The floodlight meant to illuminate the two old-fashioned pumps was broken, and the red neon sign that Todd's father had installed during headier days had been reduced by attrition to the first three letters, leaving a pitiful air of unfulfilled expectations. Half a wrecked car lay abandoned to the right of the low, flat-roofed building. It was a dark and uninviting place to be at night. The only indications of life were the buzzing three letters and a single lighted window next to the garage area, through which we could see, as we pulled in off the road, a young man sitting on a stool reading a magazine. All four of us got out of the car. We left the doors open as if running for our lives. I got a rag from the glove box and began cleaning the windshield while Grace took Emma inside. The door was glass and small bells trilled when they opened it. I stopped what I was doing to watch them. Framed against the gloaming outside, the interior of the office shone stage bright, and I saw the incongruous beauty of my wife and daughter, their two blonde heads set in my mind against Josh's and mine, our coloring so different from theirs. I saw my wife speaking and the young man, dressed in jeans and an untucked plaid shirt, handing over the key to the bathroom, and there was something shy in his manner. Though it was all theater to me, the room lit just so. And then Grace and Emma went out, the bells trilling, and they walked around the side of the building and out of my sight. Dad? I turned. It was Josh behind me, standing in the shadows near the road. Wearing a navy windbreaker, unfaded blue jeans, and black sneakers, he was almost invisible except for his face, which was colored a faint neon red from the surviving letters on top of the garage. I had no idea how he'd come to be standing so close to the road. Move away from the road, Josh. Josh looked at the ground and stuffed his hands in his pockets. 
it was clear that I'd let him down yet again, had, at some fundamental level, failed to respect his sense of himself. My face grew warm. Hey, I said with false lightness. I extended a hand out into the air for no reason, a professorial affectation. I'm not a baby, Dad, he said to the ground. Of course you're not, I said. You're my son, and I'm just being your father the best way I know how. Forgive me? He was silent, looking at his feet. When he finally looked up again, I almost smiled with guilty relief. What about the bugs, he asked. Bugs? Then I remembered. Ah, the mayflies, I said declaratively, as though I were not here with my son but at the college teaching the novel since the Second World War. Just then I felt certain I was a fool. We're out of wiper fluid. Why don't we go see if they have any? He hesitated, then shook his head. I wanted to warn him to stay clear of the road, but I'd learned my lesson. Hold the fort, I told him instead, and walked toward the lighted window where the young man was again reading his magazine. At the door to the building I turned to check on my son. His back was to me. He was standing where I'd left him, staring across the dark curve of the road. He seemed someplace else. The small bells trilled when I opened the door. The young man looked up from his reading but didn't stir from the stool. He was younger than I thought, with lingering acne and an attempt at a goatee. He had shuffled his feet and gone shy in the presence of my lovely wife, but before me his eyes betrayed a quick, hard judgment followed by withdrawal. His remove was daunting. He said he wasn't sure he had any wiper fluid left. He'd have to check. He went through a door into the adjoining garage and turned on the light. In the middle of the grease-stained floor a car was raised on cement blocks, the engine sitting beneath it like a fallen heart. The young man reappeared, carrying a gallon jug of blue wiper fluid. I handed him the money and took the jug. The weight of it surprised me. I didn't feel strong. The bells trilled and I started back to the car with my head down, studying my left knee, which was inexplicably sore, musing on my tennis game and my body and my age. I want to tell this right. I was thirty-eight years old. I had spent my entire adult life reading meanings into other people's stories, finding the figure in the carpet, the order in things, God in the details, and no place else. The car came from nowhere. No, it came from the left, racing around the bend in the road. The tires screamed, and I looked up. The car was dark blue, or green, or black. Only one of the headlights worked. It broke from the trees like an apparition, and my son was standing in the dark road. My son's head was down as if he were looking for something. I shouted his name, and his head jerked up, and then he saw the light coming at him. And in that light, as it climbed him from the feet up, his eyes grew wide and his mouth dropped open but made no sound. The right front of the car struck him dead in the chest. It sounded like ice cracking. His body flew thirty feet. Grace The gas station appeared up ahead as they came out of the turn, and without warning the words were ringing inside her, signaling a sudden change of heart. Not this, not here. The place dilapidated, decrepit, abandoned, dark. All wrong, not at all what she'd ordered. But Ethan was already breaking, pulling over. It was already happening. To try to change his mind now would be to admit to the same old fear. He'd complain that it was time, finally, just to let it go. Yes, of course, but how? Not so easy. All my life, she thought. The car slowed still more, and then, distinctly, it was the tires she heard, tread by tread over the road, pebbles and sticks, 
slower and slower, the car listing to the right, while she berated herself, castigated herself, and thought, this is ridiculous, and was eight years old again. The grass had been watered that morning, the feel of it cool and still wet between her bare toes. She could hear them by the pool, behind her as she went into the house, Daddy laughing loudly, like a happy horse at something one of the guests had said. In the kitchen, Gloria was standing at the counter slicing tomatoes for lunch. She held up the pitcher with both hands, and Gloria, smiling down at her, filled it with iced tea from another pitcher, and then she went back outside. The pitcher was heavy and made her arms hurt. She stared at it hard as she walked with small, quick steps back across the lawn, trying not to spill, but the more she stared, the more she seemed to spill. She never knew how she dropped the pitcher. It just tumbled onto the lawn, landed upside down, and before all the iced tea had disappeared into the grass, she was already crying. And then a loud crash near the pool made her look. Her first thought was that Mother and Daddy had dropped something, too, and for a moment she felt a relief so strong it was almost like joy. But then, looking over, she witnessed a strange, frightening scene— Daddy was lying on his back on the ground, and one of the guests was pounding him on the chest, and Mother, who was always so polite, was screaming for God to help her. Ethan turned off the engine. The doors opened. She was getting out. They were all getting out. She was taking Emma's hand, leading her off toward the little lighted office, trying hard with a soldier's discipline to focus her attention on anything but the awful gasping image lingering in her mind. A young man in a plaid shirt, Beard, sort of, pimples, clear blue eyes, blushing and looking down at his feet as he handed her the bathroom key, his cologne homegrown, his attentions to her physical...